And hello again, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, behind the headlines on the Middle East story. We're lucky enough to once again have with us Janice Stein. That's coming right up. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. It's the Monday episode of The Bridge, and uh, for the last, well, almost a month now, for that time period, we've been lucky enough to have Janice Stein with us to try and understand what exactly is going on in the Middle East. Janice, of course, University of Toronto, the Monk School, uh, kind of a global affairs analyst specializing in the Middle East, specializing in conflict management, and she's been good enough to join us to... uh, try and go beyond the headlines a bit, right? And the headlines on this day are not in any way encouraging. Um, Death toll keeps going up. Over 1,400 deaths in Israel, almost 8,000 in Gaza on the uh, Palestinian side. It has been a... uh, depressing story for this past three or four weeks. But with there are more stories going on as well in this. Um, you know, you have this morning's headlines. It talks about Jordan asking the United States for Patriot air defense systems amid fears of regional escalation. In other words, the war spreading beyond Israel and Gaza. You have Israel striking military infrastructure in Syria. Now, that has happened before. And the Americans have struck certain military institutions in Syria as well. But nevertheless, when that, every time something like that happens, you start worrying about whether this is going to spread beyond the borders of Israel and Gaza. Uh, the UN warning of growing hunger and desperation in the Gaza Strip. Um, you know, breaking into warehouses in Gaza on the part of people who are desperate for food and medical aid. The UN Security Council is going to hold an emergency meeting today. Um, Gaza's second largest hospital suffering extensive damage. This is one of those hospitals, one of those areas where the Israelis are convinced that Hamas has buried deep beneath the hospital in this case. They warned uh, people and they warned the hospital to get patients out. I don't know where they were supposed to take them, but nevertheless, they warned them. Um, Israel appears at this point to have advanced over two miles into Gaza with its various forces. Iran says Israel has crossed the red line in Gaza. So all these stories, you know, and they, they go on and on paints a horrible picture, but when you just hear the headline, it's good to try and put some things into context, try and go beyond the headlines. And that's the whole idea with our visits from uh, Dr. Sign. One of the other stories that has been circulating for the last few days, and this is how we're going to start off with Janice today, is this idea of a swap. Hostages for prisoners. Could it be possible 
Is it likely? What would it do if, in fact, it happened? These are questions I can't answer. But Janice is willing to take a run at trying to answer them and try to explain what, in fact, is going on on this. So a lot more, another fascinating conversation with Dr. Janice Stein. Let's get right to it. Janice, I want to start on the on the hostages for prisoners question. It's kind of an all for all. It seems to have developed uh, over the last couple of days, and there seems to be some 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 belief that this is possible. And, and just once again, an all for all would be the hostages, a couple of hundred hostages, for upwards of six thousand prisoners the Israelis hold. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, we've seen prisoner exchanges before, top, you know, in an unequal balance like that. Um, but on this occasion, do you think it's possible? This would be the the really big one, Peter, uh, because this was the purpose um, of the original attack was to get enough hostages to release all the Palestinian prisoners being held in Israeli jails. And there are 6,036 women, um, some kids, uh, 16, 15, who threw stones. Uh, So this was really the goal of Hamas. It lost control of the operation to some degree. Um, But this was the goal. And why is this possible? Because there has been, in the last three weeks, huge efforts by the families of these 239 hostages in Israel uh, to organize and put pressure on the prime minister. And we've seen real movement in public opinion. Uh, about 50% of the Israeli public supports uh, an all-for-all exchange. Uh, and that's only in three weeks. So the prime minister is under tremendous political pressure. It goes without saying that the ground operation jeopardizes the safety of those hostages. All too easy for the government of Israel to say, we're going in to do a ground operation that's going to eliminate Hamas and we're going to save hostages. In fact, those two are contradictory goals. And that's exactly the dilemma uh, that the Netanyahu government faces right now. Now, one thing that's not being reported about the hostage talks, they're being run through Qatar, as we talked about last week. Hamas is demanding a ceasefire, not a humanitarian pause, but a ceasefire as well, which tells you something about where Hamas feels it is right now. It is worried. Uh, about where things are going. Were a ceasefire to be part of that package, it would be very difficult to resume the fighting. So this is, everything is at stake here for Hamas in these negotiations. It would be a huge win for Hamas in the Arab world. It would free political prisoners, um, which nobody else has been able to do. It would get a ceasefire. And it would do something that Arab armies have not been able to accomplish. Is the um, Israeli cabinet, do we, do we have any sense of where they are in that? And as you explained last week, there's kind of two, ca- there's the inner cabinet, which is the war cabinet, 
which is what five five ministers, and then there's a larger cabinet. Would they be? Would either one of those two be split on this idea? Because it, as you said, Netanyahu has been hard against this idea from the beginning. Uh, he may be softening up now because he may be getting pressure from all all kinds of corners, not just inside Israel but outside. But did we have any sense of where the Israeli cabinet is? It's so hard to know. Um, the The larger cabinet, the cabinet that was in place when this war started, frankly, um, will not be decisive in, in all this. The, the, the decision-making power is concentrated among those five. Two are very experienced former chiefs of staff in the Israeli army, Benny Gantz and Gary Eiskanot. So hard to know. Uh, where they would be, but I, I, you put your finger on it, Peter. There, there is huge domestic pressure now. You know there are uh, tables, a long table in Tel Aviv with two hundred and thirty table settings for people who are being held hostage. It's families. It's and the pressure. It is working because they are succeeding because they've shifted domestic political opinion, which is now um, in a matter of weeks saying this takes priority. But pressure is also coming from the United States uh, to release these hostages. Um, there are Americans uh, and right from the beginning, the Biden team has put a lot of weight on doing this. It's working hand in hand with Qatar to get this done. What's different from this deal, Peter? And it's it's interesting to think about before um, the ground operation really got going, just before there was a women and children exchange being discussed on both sides. Uh, no ceasefire, women and children, much more limited. This so-called ground incursion starts um, on Friday, and the deal, the size of the deal, really escalates to an all-for-all, which is now, I I, I think it's on the table. Let me put it to you that way. What I I find puzzling, I guess, is, as you said, if if this went through as described, all-for-all plus a ceasefire, it's... It's, a, it's hard to look at it any other way than a win for Hamas. Um, yep. What does Israel get out of that, aside from the the end of the conflict, at least for now? I mean, it's, they, 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 they would still right. have 1,400 dead from the original attack. There are hundreds dead from the uh, the conflict that's been going on, uh, you know, in terms of their army casualties. Uh, they've got, uh, you know, a, a good deal of the world kind of demonstrations are against them. Not all of them, but most of them seem to be against Israel um, and for and pro-Palestinian. Uh, so what does Israel get out of it? What does Netanyahu get out of this? Well, he he, does, he he doesn't get anything out of it. Let me. But you're right. It is it, it's a defeat for Israel, and that's of course why Netanyahu is opposed, right? Uh, that's why you're hearing that hardline rejection um, of the deal. Um, and there's always this other factor going on too, that personally, it is a terrible defeat for him. And he doesn't have a personal interest right now in an early end to this war, because if there is an early end, what starts the day after is a commission of inquiry, which he has every interest in kicking down the road 
uh, as long as possible because his own leadership is at stake. So it's a personal defeat and it's a major political defeat for Israel as well. How do you frame um, that um, among those who would in the cabinet, in the war cabinet, who would urge that Israel do this? I think you make nothing really covers up the defeat, Peter. (laughs) Um, It is. It is a defeat. But what how it would be framed, we put the hostages first. This is what we've always done, which is true. As you know, they exchanged 1,000 prisoners for one soldier, Gilad Shalit, not long ago. Uh, they responded to the needs of the families. And I think there, there's a third factor here. Um, and I've been saying this from the beginning, they do not have a coherent strategy, really. Um, If there were a ceasefire, does that mean that um, the struggle against Hamas would end? I think you use the phrase, they have a very long arm, um, and they might use this opportunity to regroup and rethink what they're doing um, so that um, the vulnerabilities that we've talked about would be less. No gain saying this is a huge win, would be a huge win for Hamas for it to happen, not only against Israel, uh, which we talked about, but in many, this is the last thing that many Arab governments want. This is not what Egypt wants, you know. Um, for them, the Muslim Brotherhood, is the is the the arch enemy and Hamas is part of that. It's not uh, what Jordan wants. Um, so this will cause ripples far more <laughs> tragically than the attack against Palestinian civilians. Uh, this is something that Arab governments um, would be very very unhappy about and would not like. Um. We've witnessed another weekend where there have been, and kind of hinted at it a little earlier, but there have been a lot of demonstrations uh, in different parts of the world and some of the major capitals of the world, including uh, Canada and the United States, um, in support of the Palestinian cause, all right, as opposed to being in support of Hamas, being in support of the Palestinian cause. Um, there have been uh, some demonstrations in, uh, in in support of Israel, but they have been outnumbered by the Palestinian demonstrations. Um, is one left to believe, given that, and and the latest kind of tone about what what may be the way out of this, at least uh, initially, does that suggest that the Palestinians have won the PR campaign? If there's such a thing, it sounds crass to even say PR campaign, but they it matters. It matters. Matters. You know, it really does matter. Um, I don't think it's crass, uh, Peter. There is, you know, opinion. First of all, opinion in democratic countries matters. Uh, over the short term and over the long term. So I would never dismiss it. You know, what's new and what's old in what we've seen on the streets um, in the last uh, two weeks, really? Well, what is not new, Peter, is large-scale demonstrations in favor of Palestinians. Uh, That is uh, a recurring pattern in all the wars. And it's part of what has always pushed uh, Israel um, to get its military campaign going uh, because it 
knows it's got a limited time uh, and the limited time is a function of support in the streets for Palestinian civilians, uh, which is real and justified, uh, and also pressure um, from the United States to end the fighting. This is a recurrent story. It follows a script, um, and it's not new. What is new, I think, um, are two uh, interesting shifts in the way this is playing out. One uh, is a generational shift that we're seeing younger people um, much more openly supportive of the Palestinian cause. And and I, and Palestinian cause means um, support for Palestinian civilians that are trapped in this conflict. Uh, you know, really interesting poll, Peter, that came out in Gaza uh, just before uh, the attack in which uh, 67% of them supported some kind of political solution, uh, did not approve, did not support Hamas uh, in its in its call for uh, violence to destroy the government of Israel. Now, where they are after these horrific three weeks um, is an entirely different question. But there is, these, these Palestinian civilians are absolutely trapped. Uh, they have no voice. They are locked in. They have nowhere to go. There's no safe haven for them. You know, there is a desperate shortage of humanitarian aid and fuel. And look, Hamas had a, a year to plan this, stockpiled the fuels. And, you know, a Hamas um, official acknowledged that there are large stockpiles of fuels that are um, in the tunnels because you need fuel to run the generators for the ventilation uh, in the underground city that they built. Um, and they are not releasing the fuel even under these dire circumstances. So if you're if you're looking at this from an outsider perspective, you see this human tragedy. Um, and younger people especially simply um, uh, will, uh, will uh, you know can't support it, can't condone it um, under any circumstances. I think that is a generational change, which is important. And it's happening in the West, in democratic countries where support really matters as distinct from other parts of the world. So that's a change. I think the other change um, is, and this is probably in part a social, a function of social media, but it's a change, um, is the rise in hate, uh, both anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish, which is not, then, you know, there is a difference. <laughs> Um, there, we, we, you and I would separate Hamas from Palestinians with no difficulty, and we would separate a national movement uh, from religious beliefs. There is a difference between Israelis and Jews. I, if you look at, and some of it's on the streets, and some of it's in graffiti in neighborhoods, um, which we haven't seen before to this degree, uh, there is a rise um, of what we would call um, hate against Muslims, hate against Jews, which is actually escalating 
um, the tension, the anxiety, the fear among these communities outside of, of Israel and Gaza. It's interesting. That's new. Yeah. It, I don't know how you put that one back in the bottle, Peter, once it's out, frankly. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, one of the other things that I find interesting about this story is that the Middle East was the focus of, of the world's media for so long until about, I don't know, five, eight years ago when Western news organizations especially started pulling out of the Middle East, that they found their audience is just, you know what, we're tired of it. There's never going to yeah. be a solution. It's never going to work out. Give me something else. And the people were turning off their televisions and not reading articles that were coming from uh, from the Middle East, generally, um, especially in Western news organizations, especially uh, in North American news organizations. I witnessed it, and we've witnessed the Americans pulling out from there. This happens, the attack happens on October 7th, and suddenly the world is once again focused on the Middle East in huge numbers. You know, the ratings sky high. Everybody. Um, that started to fade again in the last week from what I'm, from what I'm told and from what I, I've read. Uh, same thing. They're never going to resolve it. These two sides hate each other. They're never going to resolve it. And I'm tired of it. Um, so I don't know whether that adds, sort of is a, you know, the, the, the generational shift that you talk about is, is apparently having real impact, especially in the States especially on Biden, now, let's not forget Biden in that first week was all in for Israel, no questions asked. Now it's kind of like the conditional thing, you know, I gotta be, we got to be careful here. You know, we got to hold back the rage. You know, we learned in Iraq, blah, 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 all that. So I don't know, the overall, the overall picture is um, at times confusing, always horrifying, uh, given yeah. what we've seen in three weeks. Uh, but what the end game is, who knows? Well, that's really the issue. Uh, you know, and, and what you talked about, Peter, was a sense of just fatigue, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's like a recurrent nightmare for many, many people. They see it over and over and over, and it never gets solved. And that's what you're seeing. And I think that's when people turn away. Um, when there's this sense that there's no way out of this trap and you see this story over and over and over again and it always ends in some forced ceasefire and they go back at it five years from now and it's only worse. And frankly, um, that's where we are. What we've seen over the last three weeks does not change that narrative arc in any sense there and people are radicalized now on both sides you know you've probably um injured the, the 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 what was left of the left and the peace party inside israel um for 10 years as a result of that first day um in which 1400 civilians were killed um it was the attack interesting of peter you know, it was among the the element of Israeli society. It was most open to peace talks with Palestinians. So many peace activists are among the hostages. So this is a game-changing um, political event, seismic event inside Israel, among the very group that was most open 
um, opposed to Netanyahu, you know, out in the streets um, for months. That's the part of the country that um, took the brunt of the Hamas attack. You know, not clear whether Hamas understands these fine distinctions or not, uh, but that's what happened. Uh, and so the fatigue that you're talking about I, I, it is there in the world, and people just turn away. Now, will young people stay focused much longer? I'm dubious. I'm dubious in an age of social media and short attention spans. Um, you know, on Biden, which you brought, we'll see. We'll see on Biden. I, I think there's a bit of a misread of Biden here in the sense Biden said everything. He said everything all in in public. <laughs> um, but did that, but then went and had very, very, very tough conversations early on um, in private. So I think, in some sense, Biden, you know, Biden's a sophisticated political. <laughs> Um, political operative. He's seen it all. He's seen it all before. And he has a very, very capable team around him. So what they did was they built the political capital that they needed to then go in hard. Um, and you, what's what's going on? He went in um, and cautioned. Uh, they sent a general. Just imagine that. <laughs> From U.S. Special Forces, they sent a general to Tel Aviv who sat there for five or six days reviewing operational plans with this war cabinet. That's not exactly an expression of confidence uh, when you do that. And the ground incursion, which we've seen since Friday, it's almost three weeks, much longer. And the, they delayed it and delayed it and delayed it. Um, and more, much more limited uh, than what was on the table at the beginning. So, um, they, you know, the, the Biden administration has had a significant impact on slowing the government of Israel down. And it's made itself the indispensable actor again in the Middle East. You can't go around the United States again. Who would have thought that? after the withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a pretty exactly. sophisticated strategy. Okay, I have one last question on uh, on the situation in Israel and Gaza, and, and that is this question about Hamas and its leadership. Like, who is it and who leads it? We know all about Israel. It's, yeah. it's much more confusing trying to figure out, like, who's really running the show on, in Hamas? Is it all done remotely from, you know, whether it's Tehran or uh, Qatar or wherever the, the Hamas leadership is is hiding out or, or, or believed to be right now? But on the ground in Gaza, who's running it? So it's a really it's a really fascinating story to see how a group like this organizes itself. Basically, Peter, there is a political wing and there's a military wing. That's the easiest way to explain this. The political leadership, with one exception, is all outside of Gaza. They're in Doha, um, in really um, beautiful villas. Uh, um, I can tell you, 
Um, they are not living in hardship. They're in Lebanon. Uh, they're spread throughout the region. They're organized as, uh, in, you know, with political bureaus and uh, they have hostage negotiators and uh, ambassadors. One was just in Moscow last week and they're they're organized. The really influential people are, because they're on the ground, are inside Gaza. And they're really two, uh, I think, that we should pay attention to. First one is Mohammed Deif, who very, very careful. You know, it's almost impossible to find a picture of him. Peter, he runs the Al-Qassam brigades, the military wing inside Hamas, inside Gaza. He is on the ground. He has operational command, and there's no question that he uh, planned the uh, October 7th attack. You you don't see him. He's re- he must be doing this from a can from a command center inside one of those tunnels. Um, he's so careful about his security because he knows he's a target. But he's enormously influential, of course, because he's on the ground. He's first of all, he's there, unlike the others uh, who don't bear the brunt in, in any way. Um, don't take the risks. He does. And he's a very effective operational military commander, totally wired in to field intelligence and getting it in real time. So he's one. The other one is interesting because he's from the political branch, but he's in Gaza. And because he's in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar, who, by the way, was released. In that exchange that we talked about earlier for the one Israeli soldier, he was among uh, the prisoners who was released. He's in Gaza. He's very influential. He's in the political wing, but because he's in Gaza, he's in close touch uh, with Mohammed Deep, and he um, can stay in touch with the political leadership that is in uh, Doha. The name that would be most familiar to our listeners would be Ismail Haniya, also well-known, very visible, but it's those two in Gaza. Um, what's apparent from all of this, Peter, and not surprising, the military wing of Hamas uh, is in the ascendancy. It's been increasingly radicalized in the last two or three years. And let me just give you one example. Hamas was very careful not to take women and children as hostages. It had you you were had to be a male and you had to be over 18. Um, and they did that because it was consistent with religious beliefs and they also understood um the 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 the, the public relations loss, frankly, to, you know, because public relations matter. Um, that they would experience if they took women and children as hostages. Well, this, in the last two or three years, they've there's been interesting debates, and we know this from captured documents. There's been interesting debates. One, there's a debate that being the government of Gaza has actually distracted them from the real goal, which is destroying Israel, 
And so they've turned away from some of the governance issues in Gaza. And secondly, of course, they've been getting a ton of money. (laughs) They engaged in a very successful deception strategy. Um, Half a billion dollars has flowed in with Israel's acquiescence. That was part of Netanyahu's strategy from Qatar um, to fund. um, And a lot of that money siphoned off um, to stockpile apparently six months food, fuel, uh, armaments, so that they could sustain a much longer war against Israel. Uh, This was obviously coordinated with Iran, but not, but the operational planning was done by DIF. So this is a semi-autonomous organization that has been radicalized, that has invested for a year to two years in a strategy that it hoped would provoke um, Israel into an all-out response, but the real goal is to get Hezbollah in full-time in this war and to simulate an uprising in the West Bank. That's the plan. And where are we on either of those two points? Hezbollah and the West Bank. yeah, that's the thing to watch for this week, right? As I think we watched two tracks, Peter. We watched to see what happens with the hostage all for all. Do we get the ceasefire? It's not so much the exchange that matters. It's the ceasefire in that package. Because then for Hamas, um, it's not the victory they wanted, right? It's not the victory they wanted. And there's huge, huge damage in Gaza of infrastructure and loss of civilians. We don't really know yet the numbers of dead in Gaza. Uh, And if Hezbollah stays on the fence, (laughs) despite all this, um, that's a defeat for Hamas as well. So we could could be in a situation with a ceasefire where it is a huge loss for Israel and a significant defeat (laughs) in Hamas's terms for Hamas as well. Man, there's so many different ways of looking at this. eh? Just in in this half-hour conversation, we've we've seen Hamas victory, Hamas defeat, within, in many ways, the same result causing both those things. Right. And I think what it would be in Hamas, Peter, it would be defeat of the more radical wink. (laughs) Right. Right who shifted the strategy in the last two or three years. Okay, we're going to, I want to check on just a couple of other things with you that got nothing to do with the Middle East. Uh, But let's take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back with that. And welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Monday episode of The Bridge. Janice Stein is our guest, as she has been the last few Mondays on uh, dealing with the Middle East situation. Uh, and we're grateful she's here. You're listening on Sirius XM Channel 167, uh, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Um, all right, Janice, let me... Um, you know, we <laughs> when Brian was with us until he started writing his book and you um, came along... Fortunately, on this story, you've been terrific on it. Uh, and Brian's off on hiatus finishing his memoirs. Uh, don't we always wish we could do that at some point? Um, the uh, 
But what he was so involved with talking to us for the last year and a half is about being about Ukraine. Now, suddenly it's like Ukraine's dropped off the face of the earth as a result of our focus, everybody's focus on what's happening in the Middle East. Has the three, last three weeks changed anything on the Ukraine story? You know, we're in a stalemate, Peter. That is for sure. The front lines have uh, on the ground have barely moved. Uh, two developments I think are worth talking about. One, the United States finally gave in and shipped to Ukraine what are called attackums, which are just longer range missiles that are armed with cluster bombs, little uh, so bombs explode in clusters. But what does this give Ukrainian capacity to do? Attack behind Russia's lines, jump over the lines, at least in the air, uh, and attack the supply lines coming from Crimea. That's what Ukraine has been doing in the last two weeks. It's going to force the Russians to pull back their supply lines. Um, And so the Ukrainians are really doing that, getting ready for the spring offensive next year. So there is recognition this war is not going to end in 2023. Um, it will go into 2024. Uh, they, they're going to fight through the winter. Um, and the Russians recognizing that have actually been putting tremendous pressure on Ukrainian forces further north in order to force Ukraine to divide its armies. Um, so the the big picture is still stalemate, but this is a stalemate that is moving all the time as each side seeks to get an advantage. This is a long haul war, Peter. Um, Poland. You wanted to mention well, Poland. There's a I did, because I was looking really hard for a good news story. Um, and Poland is just, Poland is really a good news story. Uh, it had a government that, you know, very similar to what the Netanyahu government had done. It was, but it had succeeded. Uh, it had repressed its judiciary. It had replaced many of them. It had passed anti-abortion laws. It had pulled back on climate change. It was the bad child of the European Union along with Hungary. And wow. And and a, and a poster boy for poll, you know, for for populist governments, frankly. Um, and it the, their government had been in in office in since 2015, I think almost eight years, and it looked invincible. Well, the opposition got their act together for once, right? And in an election, uh, the civic platform, it's called Donald Tusk, you may remember, uh, once uh, the prime minister um it, they that coalition won a majority and the law and justice party is out so this is an example of a country in europe eight years of populist government where the public finally stood up and said enough and threw at the government now who did it peter this ties back to our earlier theme huge turnout of young people huge I mean, we would love this in Canada, right? 
uh, something like 80%, just imagine, of voters between 18 and 29 turned out uh, and voted. That's unbelievable. Um, 70% or more turnout in the election. So what this is, is a story of get out the vote. Of good old-fashioned mobilization to get out the vote. And it should encourage everybody that populism is not forever. Um, And that... What you and I would know as organizing the ground game right. can really make a difference. It can. You know, it's interesting because in 2015, eight years ago, uh, it was that youth vote and the Indigenous vote that uh, really helped push Justin Trudeau into a majority position in that election. Ironically, he's facing this that, that same um, demographic as a potential big issue, big problem for him uh, in whenever yep. the next election may be. So that, that'll that be interesting to watch. Last place on our, our kind of what are we missing tour here, our mini water we're oh, missing yeah. tour, Venezuela. Yeah, that's a good news story too. Um, and what happened this week in Venezuela, and Maduro has been in power, everybody tried everything, right? The United States and Canada led sanctions against uh, Maduro. No impact, no impact, except to further impoverish the population. Uh, The opposition parties came together and a fiery woman candidate, Maria uh, Machado, won an overwhelming victory, a version of the same story among 10 opposition parties. She got 90% of the vote, which is an amazing feat. (laughs) It really is. Uh, And will likely, she's going to run as the presidential candidate opposed to Maduro. Now, he's already declared her as an illegal. Illegal. She's illegal. She cannot run. So the battle is going to be heating up. The United States, interestingly enough, has reduced its sanctions. Nobody's been paying attention um, in exchange for larger supplies of Venezuelan oil on the market to keep the price of oil down. So we are in now for the first real chance over this coming year to change that government in Venezuela, again, not through sanctions, (laughs) not the ways that we tried and failed to do things so often in the past, but by by Venezuelans themselves coming together, uniting the opposition, and putting forward a really effective candidate. It's going to be very interesting. If he refuses to let Maria Machado run, I expect that the sanctions will snap back. So this is all out stakes now for the future of Venezuela. The good news about these two stories, Peter, change came from within. That is and good from news. mobilized young people. And, it, and it, that's it, good news. Sure, it's good news. It gives you belief uh, that things are possible. Um, and it, I, I'm so glad we chose to do it this way because it's so... 
There's so much depressing news out there right now, and we're dealing with it as best we can. It's nice to end on a couple of notes that uh, give you hope for the future. Um, and who better to bring it to us than you, uh, Janice? So, uh, as always, uh, thanks so much for this, and uh, we'll see where we are next week. We will, and it's always great to be in a conversation with you, Peter. Janice Stein with us uh, once again as we try to understand as best we can the story that's unfolding in the Middle East and um, changes in tone and in um, gravity almost every day. We'll see where it goes this week. Uh, Okay, uh, some sense of uh, where we're heading for the rest of this week. Uh, Tomorrow is kind of an open book at the moment. Um, There's, uh, you know, I, I talk about the end bits. I've got a stack of them right now uh, from the last couple of weeks that I just haven't got to. And sometimes sometimes it's interesting to, to, to go to that pile uh, because it gives us something different to think about in a world that uh, at times feels so complicated and so difficult as we've just outlined in the last 40 minutes or so with Janice. Uh, so I might do that tomorrow. We'll see. Wednesday which is November 1st. Can you believe it? We're into November in another, what, 36 hours. Uh, Wednesday is Smoke Mirrors the Truth. Bruce will be by. Thursday, your turn. So, once again, don't be shy. Send your uh, your thoughts in to the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and as I always say, it's an opportunity to discuss stuff. You don't have to agree with me. You do have to respect the bounds of decency. And that includes not insulting people, right? We don't go there. Um, but I'm happy to, uh, uh, to read what you have to say on any number of different topics. And you're always good at doing that every week. So uh, don't be shy. The Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com. That's where you send your thoughts. Um, that's Thursday, plus the random ranter, of course, on Thursday. Friday is Good Talk with Chantel and Bruce. That's it for this week. Not this week. That's it for this day, for this Monday. We open up a new week on the bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again. Well, why don't we try in 24 hours? Mm-hmm.